Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. That's the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, a.k.a. the Ant Hill. Today I have a great interview lined up for you with a gentleman named Xavier Hawk. He's a really cool guy. He is a homesteading uh, volunteer firefighter and EMT who's semi-retired from the not-so-glamorous world of business consulting. He's made some pretty big shifts in his life. He's a guy that walks the walk and talks the talk of a real prepper. After we take care of our sponsor, sponsor of the day, number one today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Uh, you know, it's great to have a gun. It's great to believe in the Second Amendment. It's great to be able to defend yourself and your family. But the reality is you don't know what a high-stress situation is like until you deal with one. And we can't all just, you know, magically end up, you know, having a simulated, uh, a, you know, a home invasion and deal with it to a point of competency. It doesn't work that way. And you never get to know what it's really going to be like. You have no idea whether one guy's going to kick your door in because he wants your TV or four guys are going to come in there to abduct your family. Uh, it's not something that you like to think about. It's not, you know, the, the, the cone of safety that you, you like to cast off. But the reality is harsh things happen to people every day. And the only way that you're going to be able to deal with them as best you can is to have really great training. And that's where Fortress Defense Consultants come in. It's not just about having the gun and the ammo. It's about knowing how to run that gun and knowing how to run every gun that you own and run it well and to make sure that the rest of your family is prepared if that dire situation ever happens. And if you're going to carry around the ability to take a life, you should know how to save a life, even the life of a bad guy. Uh, and you can get great uh, first responder medical training style training as well at Fortress Defense Consultants. So check them out today, FortressDefenseConsultants.com. Next up today, backyard food production. Hey, you know, it's great to talk about guns and ammo and stuff like that. And that's what preppers think about a lot. But the reality is I've only been in a very few fights in my life where there was any real danger to my personal, you know, being, uh, you know, not coming out the other side. But I've had to feed myself every single day. And I'll have to feed myself every single day for the rest of my life. And you will, too. So securing your food supply in some ways is even more important than securing your personal property and your, and your body. Um, so, you know. Put in some food security by producing your own food. Storage is a finite endeavor. You can't store enough food to live forever, but we can grow enough food to live for our entire lives if we do things the right way. And that's what the DVD food production systems for a backyard or small farm will help you to do. Check them out today at BackyardFoodProduction.com. Next, remember you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And remember to check out the TSP Copper Store at tspcopper.com for some really cool copper medallions. Just so you know, because one person got confused, when you see the price there and it says one $34, that's not one coin, that's a roll of 20. One roll of 20. It says roll of 20, but a few people have been kind of shocked. At $34 for one coin? No, $34 for, for, four, uh, for 20 of them. Anyway, um... With that, let's go to a happier tone. It's my great fortune now to uh, introduce to you our special guest for today. Again, Xavier Hawk. He's a homesteading volunteer firefighter and EMT who now considers himself semi-retired from the not-so-glamorous world of business consulting. He's also a prepper who has gone from living in suburbia to rural mountains of western North Carolina. He's made some huge changes in his life over the years, and especially the last few years. He's here to talk about you know, what it's like when you actually move from uh, the hustle and bustle of the city to a true remote area, what it's like for your kids, how you can actually get people in your county involved in preparedness and take care of your neighbors and look after your community and be involved uh, without being uh, tied to the system anymore, being unplugged from the matrix but still having some influence upon it. Uh, with that, it's my good pleasure again to introduce Xavier Hawk. Hey, Xavier, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Hey, Jack, how you doing? So um, I'm excited to have you on. We've been chatting on and off. We were eventually trying to get some kind of an event put together together. Uh, but you've recently done what I've done, but you did it with a much more of a family with kids and all, and that is make the transition from suburbia to rural self-reliance living uh, with the family with you. And I think a lot of people are going to be uh, excited about doing that, and a lot of people are trying to do that. 
So I guess my first question for you, because everybody has in their head what it's going to be like, is it what you expected it to be? Well, well, first off, thanks for having me. And to answer that question, I <laughs> no, I, to some degree, yes, but in other ways, no. Um, I I had no idea how to work on my truck, for instance. Um, there was a lot about it that I did not know how to do in suburbia because I just grew up that way. You know what I mean? I went and spent a lot of time camping um, and you know going on wilderness trips and wilderness excursions when I was a little bit older, in my later teens and whatever, but. Um, growing up, I didn't know how to, you know, build a house, do any of that. But I now I know how to. <laughs> like now, when I first came out, there was no way I could have gone to a piece of property that was having no infrastructure. Um, but now I feel comfortable enough with all the things that I know and like uh, alternative power and and building and all that 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 I'd be happy to do that now. You know, but it took like the, the couple years being out here to get to that point. When exactly did you guys first move? Uh, Two summers ago, two winters ago. So you're about two years into it. Yeah, two and a half years, I'd say now. What was maybe like the the biggest headache that you you know that you didn't plan for and ended up having to deal with? <laughs> learning how septic systems work, learning how wells work, learning how solar pumps work, learning how plumbing works, <laughs> learning how insulation works, learning how, <laughs> yeah, literally everything. Um, I had had no experience. Literally, I had literally no experience doing any of those things. So tell us a bit about the place you're living now. When you moved there, was it just vacant land and that's what you started with and that's why you had so many things to learn? And, and no, no. Yeah. We actually were very fortunate. We found a beautiful piece of property, south-facing slope, in the mountains of western North Carolina, about 40 minutes, 50 minutes north of Asheville. And um, beautiful neighbors, a beautiful little town, like 10, 20 minutes away, or I'm sorry, 10 minutes away. And um, the property was actually developed by a, a really swell couple, and they were building it as a retreat, as a bug-out location, pretty much. Um, they were already into that whole mindset. And uh, they needed to get out. They had purchased at a time when things were really expensive and they had made a lot of modifications to the place to have it prepared for, you know, like when the power goes out. Like we just had today. Uh, we still had running water and everything thanks to the, the forethought that they had had. But I have done a lot of fixing and a lot of upgrading and a lot of just fixing because a lot of stuff was done, um, you know, maybe watching YouTube videos. Okay, I, I get you. Um where, where, where are you at with it now? Like, where have you gotten to? Well, we have a cistern that um, is fifteen hundred gallons up the top of the hill. The uh, it's runoff solar panels and a, and a pump that goes up, so that you know when the power goes out, we have power. I mean, we have water still. You know, we have um, integrated uh, generators and backup generators. Um, we have taken a lot of the land and turned it into really productive, fertile soil. Uh, they were an organic farm previously, so they had some really good spots, but we've added a lot more perennials. Um, we've gotten a lot more trees and, and fruits and stuff like that. We've built out the chicken coop huge, fixed a lot of the fencing, and we're getting hopefully a cow and a, and a calf um, this year. Was there maybe a, like a lot of culture shock for your kids, and you know, how, you know how did how did you deal with that, or did they just take to it, or it was or for yeah, you? It was super culture shock for all of us, really. Um, going from a neighborhood where you didn't know any of your neighbors, literally, and, and and you could see like eight of their houses just being on that one street, you know, um, and then going to to this area where. The culture is completely different. Everybody's a lot nicer. It, it is a much more um, welcoming, you know, God-fearing community. You can say, you know, very, very Southern Baptist. Um, there's a church, you know, every every couple hundred yards, <laughs> and uh, just really swell people, you know. Um, I, but I really got involved with the fire department and the rescue squad, and I really got, um, you know, getting to know the community. I went to go meet my sheriff, meet the mayor, you know, and go sit and have a conversation with them, things that you don't normally do in a, in a larger suburban setting. You know, and I figured from a uh, preparedness standpoint, that's a great thing. And also just from, a, you, you know, being a, a good member of society, taking part in your local um, government, you know. But for my kids, that was a different story altogether. For, um, you know, I have a teenage daughter, or she's just about to be a teenager, and, you know, she came from a society where you know, everybody watches television, dresses up, goes and, you know, do, does all the, the things that kids do, teenagers do in, in um, school and television and all that and pop culture. And coming to a very rural area, I think it was a bit of a transition, you know. Um, she, she didn't really like it at first. 
but she's grown to since then. And um, so, what what are you, you know kind of what is your next step uh, as far as uh, where do you want to go from here? Well, um, most of the things that we're we're focused on here are education, inspiration, and empowerment. We've kind of turned our homestead into a learning opportunity for people in the community, um, and not just our local community, but from around the country. Um, we've had a lot of woofers, uh, which are worldwide opportunities on organic farms. And what they do is they, um, they're young folks generally, and they're going they're between college semesters or something like that, and they want to get a, an idea of what life is like on a farm or how, you know, how to get closer to the earth and this and that. And so they, um, they come and they camp or um, you know, they stay in town or something like that, and come out and work every day and get a good idea of what it's like to live on a homestead and what it's like to, to live on a farm. Um, the last set of woofers that came through were awesome. They helped us erect the yurt and the, uh, the Cobb pizza oven. And we also are, are building relationships with a lot of the um, organizations in Asheville that do, that do work with underprivileged um, populations or, or at-risk populations and get them out in a farm and learning what that's like, you know, and, and um, how to be productive. And a lot of the things that you talk about, you know, and when you say uh, it's not preparedness or survival, it's really about being a good person, being a good man, being able to take care of your family, being self-reliant. The, the transition from being totally plugged into the matrix to really getting to pick and choose when I plug in and why I plug in, um, that, that has been the biggest lessons. It's like, uh, it's, it's, that's the most rewarding thing, you know? And you guys are actually kind of doing a lot on that community bent to like help your local community be better prepared. What, what kind of things are you doing there? Well, there was this really great book called Emergency and I forget the author's name. Um, but it was a really great book. I, I, I was recommending I believe it. it's Neil Strauss. Let yeah. me see. There's a that's copy it. actually sitting right here on my desk. Yeah, I was supposed to interview him, and they had a scheduling conflict. Yeah, Neil Strauss. Yeah, um, he. First of all, I got that book through a friend, and then I've been passing it on, and um, you know, a lot of people have been touched by that book. I think, but it's, he had this great transformation, kind of like what we're talking about here, going from total plugged in, no idea that there's outside of the matrix, and then all of a sudden waking up like, oh, there are cracks over here and over here. And, Holy shit, that's a huge crack, right? You know, mm-hmm. and, um, that transition of like, okay, now I need to get prepared. What do I do? How do I do it? And I had been on that road for a very long time, but his journey was that all condensed, you know, and it was, um, it, it really inspired me. And so it, it went from, I used to be really scared, you know, when I was younger. I know how to take care of myself. I've got, um, you know, all the survival training and, and I spent a lot of time doing and working on those skills, but, uh, I, I could get out of Florida if I needed to. But then once I had a family and now I had kids, it was like, man, there's a lot more than I'm going to go out into the woods and forage and hunt, you know. So um, it's actually taught me a whole lot and moved me in that direction. But I wanted to get past the fear, right? So it came to a point where, like, okay, I'm prepared. I've got a good a good stance in my martial arts stance, if you want to call it that. You know, you can't go and attack. You can't go and make a difference out there unless you're taken care of here. You know, as a firefighter, if I'm not safe, then nobody that I'm going to save is safe. You know what I'm saying? Correct. So, um, so the idea was, okay, now we're prepared, but wh- how do we turn that into action? How do we turn that into empowerment rather than, oh, okay, you know, we're as prepared as we think we can be, and there's always room for improvement, of course, but um, wh- where does it transition from a fear-based mentality to here's what good I can do for my community? And it, it started off with that book and reading about how he went through CERT training and, you know, became a volunteer uh, responder and all this. And I had history in that as a firefighter and as an ENT, and as a wilderness first responder, so how would I transform that into this? It was like, well, let's do CERT, you know? And so we got a whole bunch of people from the community here, came up to the farm here, and had a CERT training. You know, we hosted one. You hosted it. That's very cool. Yeah, so we we are like the CERT team in our small town, you know? Um, and further than that, I was like, well, let me join. the. I really have a passion for search and rescue and tracking and being outdoors and, and being out in the wilderness. And... Um, so I, I was like, well, let me start a search and rescue team. Uh, that way we can get to know our local authorities, quote unquote, um, or public servants, really, and develop relationships with them. Because if things I like that distinction, Xavier, yeah. instead of authorities, they're public servants. I yeah. mean, more people need to think that way. Yeah. And, you know, luckily, the sheriff in our town thinks that way, feels that way and lives that awesome. way. You know? 
Awesome. Yeah, um, and I've had good opportunities to hang out with them and see, you know, what kind of uh, relationships we can develop between the farm and them or my search and rescue team and them. Um, and because when things get tough, these are people that people are going to rely on and look to. And if I'm in a pos- and another way I think about it is if I'm in a position to be of service and I have skills and abilities that are of use to my community, then that increases the odds of, quote, unquote, survival for my family and my children. And that's really what it comes down to. Um, it's like... Here we go. We can take the the idea of being prepared on our own from one level to how do I communicate and and work in this community because we are tribal creatures, whether we think that we are not any longer. You know, Um, when we get down to the root of it, we can't survive unless we have each other. You know, we can't uh, function and we can't excel and grow as a species without one another. Those are, that's the greatest resource we have. As much as I like to make fun of the Wall Martians, you know, like I go there still, you know, it's, it's just, <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, I do. People I who do. are so reliant on the system that I don't think that we can save them all, you know, as much as I would love to, you know, you know, flowers and kittens and unicorns and everything. But I just don't think that if we face a real hard economic time, you know, dang, I think a lot of people are going to be uh, facing some real serious consequences. Yeah. You and me both. Now, you're talking about this stuff like an old timer that's been doing this your whole life, but this represented a huge change for you and your family going back a few years. Dude, what like, was it like where you lived before? What kind of living conditions? What was your you know profession, so to speak? What what type of, of transition was this really like? A bef- kind of give us a before and, and after look at this. Well, I'm gonna go way back. Um, I got. I was working as a waiter a long, long time ago. I had had a, a guiding business where I did like wilderness um, excursions and facilitated groups and stuff like that. But then 9-11 had hit. I um, started a nonprofit out in California. I was really working with young activists and um, not just activists, but like change makers, people who were in the political arenas, starting non-governmental organizations, doing all this, like really inspiring folks. 9-11 happened and all the funding for nonprofits in that whole sector kind of just fell through the floor. Ended up in South Florida and waiting tables, and I got so distraught. And like that was a huge transition, right? Going from this inspiring work of young folks who really felt like we could make a difference, and we're actually doing so, to living a really unrewarding, unfulfilling, you know, suburban existence. Really, like what? What do you do? You go work and go party and work and party, that kind of thing. And um, I remember one day I was fed up. I was fed up with getting a paycheck. And I got hit by a car. I was riding my bike, and um, I was all I could think about was like, I hate getting a paycheck, and uh, I hate paycheck working for somebody. You know, having to go do something that's degrading to my spirit. And um, and I got hit by a car, and I took that as a big sign. And I changed my whole course and became a, a lifeguard and then a firefighter. And found out pretty quick that I was good at um, graphic design and um, and consulting, really. And it branched off. Like I ended up doing consulting work for some really good organizations, really good companies. And I was able to quit my job and go to self-employed and make myself a good living. And I was single and having a great time, you know, and all of these things. Um, you know, I had a, a nice little bungalow on the beach. Um, and then, then having a family and knowing what was coming down the pipe and then realizing, wow, I'm going to have to really step up my game and go from, um, from, uh, taking care of just myself to taking care of a family and doing so in what could be very difficult times. And it's not unrealistic and it's not out there and it's not fantasy to do th- serious threat assessments and say, this is what potentially could be happening. How do I provide myself with a response to it? That's, you know, intelligent and, and, and like can handle it. And then, uh, you know, becoming a, um, going from, realizing that I didn't like paychecks to realizing I didn't like to work for people um, and be have my income be determined by those folks. I kind of we we took a look at where we were at, what we had in terms of um, our own assets and uh, made the plunge into, you know, homesteading. And luckily, I've had residual income from the consulting jobs that I've, I've done that we've been able to make that transition smoothly and comfortably for the most part. You know, there are some big uh, expenses that we've had to incur that kind of took out of our savings and whatever. Um, unexpected, like you were talking about, I think, in um, the last episode, at, uh, your five minutes with Jack. Yeah, yeah, there's always uh, something unexpected. Yeah, and so we made that transition and um, we're able to do so with relative ease and... 
now it's time for, you know, um, now I've been developing my own projects. You know, it's been a lot of having the, the faith in myself that, yo, I can make something happen for myself. I, I've shown over and over again that I can do it for other people. Now it's time to, to do it for myself and my own family and take control of now our economic um, homesteading. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and you're looking to do a lot of entrepreneurial things, I think, and I think that's awesome. You're also trying to be more self-sufficient just with the property that you have now. What are some of the things that have provided the best return from you? I know you're trying to grow food and all there are certain things that you've grown that have done really well in your climate or have really, you know, the kids like it and they eat it and they don't complain or yeah. drink, you consider like a home run. Um, our chickens. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because uh, we got a, a, a pretty big uh, flock of them, I guess, is the right term. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, close to 30, and we fed them all winter. And, you know, we learned that the light cycles, you know, change, and that's what really gets them laying. Um, and But we learned about that later in the game, you know, so we didn't really get them producing until just a, a couple weeks ago. And I mean, we are inundated with eggs and that, and we all love eggs. And, uh, one of the things that we did to get, first of all, what we did is we went and stayed at a friend's farm. Um, he's a native man and he lives up in Virginia and he's got this huge, wonderful farm and he lives self I mean, he doesn't need to go to the store for anything except for coconut oil. And now I think he has it delivered. You know what I mean? Um, he, he's totally self-sufficient. He's got, acres and he's got a little garden and he's got a bunch of chickens and he's got a well that provides him what water springs and all kinds of stuff. And that was really what inspired us. You know, we've heard how hard it is to sustain a family and this and that on, on, on your, on your land solely. But here's this, this man who is like a good friend of ours and it just, he was doing it. So we're like, yeah, "Yeah, it's possible, you know, and he we had talked. I told him about, you know, well, we're preparing for this and that. And he's like, I could feed like 100 families here, you know, all all self-sustaining. And so that really gave us a huge we stayed there for about a month and we're like, yeah, you know, we we transitioned our diet and everything. And it was uh, all we ate a lot of eggs, you know, every once in a while. I think only the one time we actually had a, a turkey that he had grown there himself, you know, and um but a lot of vegetables and we all, by the end of the time that we were there, we felt so good. We felt so, there was no signal, no cell phone signal. I had to like take the car and drive down the road a ways to go get any Wi-Fi or cell phone or anything. So it was like, we were totally out of the matrix and we looked around and we we're like, this feels really good. This feels really good. Regardless of whether the system's collapsing or whatever, this just feels right. Um, so that was a lot of what inspired us, you know, and what got us moving in that direction. Awesome. How many acres do you guys have? Eleven. Eleven. So yeah. you're doing an awful lot with eleven acres. I think there's a lot of people still of the mindset like to really be self sufficient, you gotta have forty or you gotta have eighty acres and and I don't think that's the case. We are by no means fully self sufficient or self reliant at this point. Sure. We have a power line that comes in, so we're getting our power still from the local co op, but it is a uh, they're pretty good with their customer service, and if power does go out here, it doesn't go out very long. But we do have backup generators and whatnot. Um, I, I'd say, and we have a pond with a lot of fish. So, but the, one of the best things about the property here is um, all the nettle. I don't know if you've ever had nettle, but it, it's awesome. It's so good. It's like so much more nutritious than spinach, um, and we have huge patches of it. So, as long as you wear gloves when you pick it, and yeah, take exactly. it you eat it, you're good. Yep. <laughs> And uh, we have a lot of chickweed and a lot of other just naturally wild occurring wild edibles and a lot of medicinals. Um, so even, with what we have stored and with what I know and with what we've got growing, I know we'd be able to withstand a couple of years. Um, we would definitely need things like oil and vinegar and, uh, you know, but that's where I think the cow comes in. Having a means of getting uh, butter and milk and, and things like that. That's really important. And then having grains. One of the things we're trying big time this year is um, a lot of alternative grains, you know, like ground cover, um, cover crops, but that are grains and that we can eat and, and, and use, um, like millet and um, what was the other one? Amaranth. You know, these, these things. Yeah, amaranth is a huge one for me. Um, and as I look at going to... I'm trying to go into more self-sufficient livestock, livestock that look after themselves, 
And yeah. kind of the home run I see for that, and this is something I'm kind of working on with Jason Akers to figure out what to do, is pigeons and, and doing squabs. Because the pigeons, if you give them a little bit of feed, they'll forage for a lot of their dogs, and they fly off your land and go find something to eat. Yeah. Uh, they'll come back, and they'll produce, you know, two squab, apparel produce about two squab every every six weeks-ish, and, and they'll do that all year from spring to to late fall, they'll produce about six batches for you. So with yeah. a couple dozen and raising them in, in dovecoats, you know, you can <laughs> wow. eat a lot, of, a lot of pigeons. And you take the squab when they're just about the size, a little bit bigger than a, a morning dove. So, okay. you know, two of them are decent for a person. And, you know, I think that's – but, the, but you, when you say amaranth and millet, those are – even if I'm not going to use it directly, those are great feedstocks and very much easier to grow than freaking wheat <laughs> You know, or corn. Exactly. exactly. And yeah, uh, we, when we tried corn the last two seasons, it was just horrific. I mean, because we are, we are beyond organic, right? We are not about sustainability. We are about rejuvenating the, the land because um, a lot of what we do on Colony Earth, and some, I have a, you know, a couple of different things that I'm doing. One of the things that I, I do really heavily in my own personal life and, and in communities is um, do a lot of ceremony, like uh, pipe ceremonies and sweat lodges and native ceremony, native and indigenous-based, um, you know, just appreciation for the world around us. So what that comes into play is we think of ourselves as caretakers. We're not just here to farm the land and produce for ourselves. We're here to help rejuvenate the land and give respect to the world that we live on, you know, that feeds us, with without whom we would not be here, you know? Um, so in, in that, like a lot of the hugel culture ideas and a lot of the ideas that are in permaculture totally fit here and totally um, it, it, it's lockstep in what we're doing. But we're also all about taking care of the soil and making sure that the soil is rejuvenated. When we came here, there were a lot of plots that were just no, no good. I mean, you, you know what broom sage is? Yes, I do. So if, you, if it's growing in a spot, you know that the soil is nutrient deficient. You know, it's, it's trying to fix that. Um, so we have a lot of spots with broom sage, which make good mats and stuff, and we've actually made a couple. And I'm building a primitive shelter uh, with a friend of mine on, on one of the lower parts of our property, and that's going to be a perfect um, uh, mycelium-growing location, you know. So we're doing a lot of different um, things like that, but we're really about taking care of the land and building the soil. And... Um, so that's that's a lot of what we're looking to do. I, I think I lost track of what I was my point. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, well, you're talking about corn and having trouble growing right. corn. Yeah. So what we weren't doing was we weren't putting any fungicide. We weren't putting any uh, anything. We were just putting stuff in the ground and seeing what would grow, trying different varieties, and the corn just like rotted right on the on the stock. And mm -hmm. in fact, last year um, our peach trees they had brown rot. Right there on the stem, they just fell apart. So, you know, looking that up and learning what to do about that, that was a challenge, too. It's like, well, we had to cut the peach trees back to, like, almost nothing, you know, because you can tell where brown rot is because a certain kind of sap comes out. It's not really sap. It's like the tree bleeding, you know. And so we've actually delved in deeper what it means to be part of the natural life cycle of things and how plants communicate, how plants tell you what's wrong with them, you know. And um, being able to uh, interact with the, the, the spirit, I guess, of the plant, so that you know what its properties are, what it does. My wife can, like, she's an amazing herbalist as well as my daughter. Uh, speaking of transition for kids, uh, she's 12 years old now, and she didn't know the first thing about any plants when we were in South Florida. And now she knows way more than I do. I mean, just a, a crap ton more than I do. And she can point out this, yeah, did you know that this grows here and it likes this kinds of conditions and this is what it's good for? And, and I'm just blown away, you know, and that's the kind of education that a child would never get in, in suburbia. And so the, the trade-off for her was, you know, lack of supposedly like friends and, and social circles for more self-confidence, more uh, self-reliance, more ability to, to know something and, and say, like, this is something that I know and I'm, I'm amazing at, you know, and they get to shine in that way. And that's super rewarding. And, you know, because we're part of homeschooling groups and this and that and have traveled, you know, we have friends that come through now all the time. So it's like, it's almost like getting your best friends on the farm every other month or every other week. 
That's awesome. That's awesome to hear. Yeah. And on, on the corn thing, uh, I, I've had issues with doing it myself and, and even with preparing beds with huge amounts of compost and all. What I'm going to try this year is I've got some red and blue, uh, very ancient strains of Indian corn that Marjorie uh, from Backyard Food Production sent me. I'm going to see how they do. Oh, cool. She's told me they're a lot less nutrient demanding, a lot less water demanding uh, than modern forms of corn. So we'll see how that works out, even if it ends up being a good source of, uh, you know, just corn flour and stuff like that, because they're more of the, you know, uh, I, I can't even remember the names of the two. One's red and one's blue, but they're along the lines of like something like Green Dent. Yeah, uh, you yeah. know the variety, that type of a, of an Indian corn. So I don't think it's going to be great to slather with butter, but um, you know maybe we can get it to grow. But I think part of like if you want to do things naturally, there are places where you can just stick corn in the ground, like you're saying, and it'll grow. And there's climates yeah. where not so much. Yeah. So like our challenge is to determine wherever we're at. What it's not. What do you want? It's throw everything at it, see what sticks, and then focus on the things you like that grow well there. That's right. That, that's and, one of the big things that we learned. It was, it was like the first year we threw everything in the ground, everything that we could think of. And um, we found out what worked and what didn't. And a lot of things that I, I really love, like like uh, broccoli and Brussels sprouts, they didn't grow. They didn't do well. But we also learned about timing. And, you know, there's a actually because of, I, I got to know the, the local um, greenhouse guy. He, he provides a lot of the plants and stuff to the community. He he was like, yep, if it, uh, if, if there's thunder and lightning and a storm on the 23rd of February, well, then on, on 23rd of March, there's going to be the same thing. You know, it's like <laughs> he's been here that many years that yeah. they know that, it, like, I looked up on the calendar, and sure enough, he had it marked. You know, if there's a thunderstorm on this day, then the last freeze is on this day. You know, um, that's invaluable information that I, you know, there's no book that could tell you that. Yeah, that's that's getting to know the elders in your community, and that's something yeah. I think we've we, we've lost uh, lost track of. You mentioned you had a pond and a lot of fish there, and to me, um, that is like one of the most uh, one of the biggest things you can do toward developing self reliance for yourself is water. It's one of the big reasons that Dorothy and I are considering a move back to Texas and looking for more land and land that's more suitable for ponds because. You can produce a lot of fish with a little bit of water. That's right. And if we look to the east, if we look to Asia, the you know, uh, I remember Bill Molson saying, you, you go to these places and there's water everywhere and you never see a mosquito, and that's because if they have a puddle the size of a teacup, they'll put a fish in it. <laughs> there's, there's fish everywhere, and a huge part of their protein comes from that. Yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the things that we are learning about. I've never been a big fish eater Um as amazing as that sounds, uh, I think I was traumatized as a child and just <laughs> the smell kind of puts me off. But I've been working on it um, because I understand that – I mean, I I tend to look at food as a fuel and um, <laughs> if I can get past the taste, then it's all gravy, you know. Um, so sure. for me, learning about fish is, is one of my growing edges. But we do have a thing full of, full of trout, so. Oh, cool. Yeah. I guess you're far enough north to pull that off now. Yeah, yeah, and there, there's also actually a koi in there as well, which is kind of cool. Um, how, how big's the pond? Uh, I'd say it's about twenty to thirty feet across, um, maybe a little bit more. Okay, so it's not huge. It's a. It's, it's a, not huge, yeah, but it's it's definitely bigger than a swimming pool. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> it's that's, a, that's cool. A thing, yeah. Um, it's it's like a like a swimming pool, like, you know, like the bean shaped swimming pools, you know, the, just a yeah. map that but circular. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, and it's real deep. Um, so, but we have a lot of a lot of cool things growing there as well. Well, I think it does a lot for your property as far as just the way it impacts the other wildlife and things as well. Yeah, yeah, we have birds, have, dragonflies, have, frogs. There's lots of squirrels. Um, oh, but down by the pond, yeah, we have a lot of frogs um, and. And we have snakes, too. And uh, that has been a, a, a growing edge for my wife. I don't think she likes snakes very much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think they're all fine until I can't see them and they're venomous, right? Right. All, right. The, other, all the other instances I'm cool with. Uh, yeah. Not seeing them and non-venomous, fine. Right. Not seeing them and venomous, fine. Not seeing them and venomous and they're in the deep grass or something. Yeah. We have a lot of copperheads and timber atlas around here, and that, those are not cool. <laughs> no, we have we have copperheads, and that has been a huge growing edge <laughs> for my wife. Um, I carry a, a pistol around with me or a rifle on my ATV whenever I'm going and doing stuff. Um, but then that's only for copperheads, really. Um, yeah. Because there's no reason for them to be here. They're, they they 
from a medicine perspective, they, they provide a really interesting uh, message, right? But from a, I've got two-year-old wandering around, like, you don't yeah. belong here, I'm sorry, you know? Uh, and that you got animals as well, and that's another thing, yeah. you know. And yeah. what I've what I've taken to is whenever I see any any type of animal that I think could be advantageous to my property, like lizards and non venomous snakes, I'll I'll capture them and bring them home. And yeah. what I'm always on the lookout for are king snakes and milk snakes because uh, they like to eat copperheads and rattlesnakes. Mm. <laughs> you know, I yeah, mean, we've had a lot of rat snakes around here. Um, it'd be nice. So king snakes and which snake? Milk snakes, and you probably have both of them in your area. The milk snakes often get confused with coral snakes, but they're right. really hard to confuse them unless you want an excuse to kill them. Uh, um, and there's like so many varieties of king snakes, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like it's like saying rat snake. Well, which one, you know? But yeah. all king snakes and all milk snakes are predators of other snakes, and uh, they're really. I mean, they'll find uh, you know young rattlers especially, and they'll they. It's one of their favorite things to eat, uh, and they're immune to the venom. That's so good. it's a it's a great thing to have around. Um, I'll tell you, rattlesnake does taste good though. Rattlesnake does taste good, but it's certainly something you don't want to experience the the wrong end of. Um, <laughs> the timber rattlers we have around here, the uh, Latin name for them is Caroctalus horridus, and oh, horridus okay. is 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 nomen- that that was decided not because the snake looks horrible, but the results of a timber rattler bite. Uh, yeah. The original documentation on them it was described as a horrible injury. Yeah. Uh, even if the guy didn't die, it was really necrotic, even compared yeah. to the Diamondbacks. And uh, I, I, I have, I have a kind of a mixed emotion with snakes. I actually love snakes. I'm kind of a fanatic. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to protecting my wife, my dogs, my exactly. guests, you know, I'm sorry, man, you know, go somewhere else. Or you know, if I can, if I can relocate a snake safely, I'll do it. If there's any question at all about my safety or the safety of other people, off with its head. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. just it's got to be. Yeah, and I think uh, speaking of uh, predatory animals, um, there there are packs of coyotes that come through this valley all the time, and you know that they're there because all the dogs in the in the in the neighborhood, quote unquote, everybody's going crazy, you know. And I can sit out on my porch and I can say one night like, oh yeah, it's probably about you know right over the ridge to my left, and then the next yeah. night it's like, okay, they're over my right, they pass by, you know. It's amazing how in touch with the surroundings and the environment one can get when you're outside of the the bubble of, you know, <laughs> society, really. You know, on the coyote thing, I'm pretty convinced that they can see infrared light. I have game trail cameras out on my yeah, property. I wouldn't be convinced. You know, the deer, you see the deer, they look at it and it lights their eyes up and they can sort of kind of, maybe something's there, but they just go on about their business and eat whatever's around them and all. I've oh. had coyotes on those cameras only in extremely brief, you know, half a second moments. As soon as their eyes hit, they're gone. Yeah, and they must be able to see that. So the the sensory perception of that animal is is immense. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because you and I wouldn't see it. No, not at all. <laughs> and and that that's also amazing. I have friends who do uh, communication, interspecies communication research. They've been on National Geographic, ABC, NBC, all of this, and they, you know, like elephants in Africa, they found out that they communicate at a subsonic frequency that you and I can't hear, you know, and it's not surprising because dogs can smell things that you and I can't smell. I mean, sure. it's, it's like the spectrum with which we perceive that is so narrow compared to some of the, some of the animals out there. And, um, yeah, like like dolphins, really high pitched, really they can carry a lot of information digitally in their in their. It's like uh, they communicate visually almost. You know, the they found that the the subsonic waves kind of affect their cortex in such a way that it produces images, kind of like almost like an internal television. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. So it's amazing what's out there, and when when we think of our surroundings as food or just simply as, uh, you know, beasts or whatever, we, we miss out on all the communication that's going on. You know, like I sometimes geek out from a physics and science perspective, how much information is floating between people when we speak, you know, radio waves, for instance, you know, and, and like, who's to say that the arrangement of the air molecules aren't like in such a way that they actually portray and convey imagery and, and messages and uh, more in like information and data, you know? Sure. So, so from a scientific perspective, talking about spirit and how people connect with the earth and whatnot, like that stuff is really there. I just don't think we have the sensitivity or sensitivity and instrumentation to really understand what's going on. You know, like in the movie Avatar, where it's like, um, I really have a feeling that the earth is a lot like that. 
in, in the things that I've seen, in the ways I've seen animals, you know, get along with each other that shouldn't be, you know, like sure. lions and sheep or whatever. You've seen all the things out on the Internet people send around. Well, the one where the lion adopted the uh, the little, gaz- uh, was either a gazelle or some sort of antelope was pretty amazing. Right, exactly. Yeah, and eventually one of the males ended up killing it, but you know that the mother took care of it for like months. And then like there's there's interesting things that happen between humans and animals. Like you know the, they say man's best friend is a dog, right. and everybody that's owned a dog knows for a fact that dogs smile. Yeah, but they wild canines don't do that with each other because one dog species doing that to another dog species in the wild is it, the baring of teeth is a sign of aggression. Right. But yet when they start living among us, they actually take on our persona, and there's no doubt that they they grin. The other night, my my old lab was having one of his you know night terrors. I don't know, remembering being at the puppy mill or something and whimpering in his sleep and doing the foot thing, mm-hmm. and I woke him up. And when he woke up, his eyes opened. And then he realized where he was. He just this big old dog grin. Yeah. And it's it's interesting that there's this dynamic, as you say, interspecies dynamic, that I think most people don't notice. And I'm sure the closer you get to living with nature, the more you you are, become observant of it. That's exactly what I was going to kind of tie it into. Is like, you know, we went from living in suburbia where you didn't see that sort of thing. You didn't. You were not connected to the cycles of life. It was the cycles of the supermarket. You know, and if you were <laughs> lucky, the cycles of an organic supermarket. You know, and uh, the truth is, is that we are creatures on this planet. We're, we're not these bobble-headed, you know, make-believe fiction characters walking around. We are actual creatures, part of the cycles of life. And if we, if for, for us, it was this huge uh, sigh of relief for me on a preparedness standpoint and a huge sigh of relief uh, on my wife's perspective because it was like, she's like, you know what's going on. You take care of us. I don't want to. I don't want to focus on all the the bad things that are possibly happening and this and that. You're the man. You focus on. It. I'm like sweet. You know. So I'm I'm like we're gonna do this, this, and this. And she's like, I got you. You know. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. Um. And then from her perspective, it was like, but that lifestyle is really just good for human beings. It's really good for being alive and really you know making you feel inspired. So it, you know your tagline is really good at balancing that, and that's what coming out here has really been good for both of us in doing is like we got out of suburbia plugged out of the matrix all of a sudden we feel a whole lot safer even though we're much more exposed you know in our in our mind of what society is and and all that we're much more exposed and we have to rely on ourselves and if somebody comes that's a bad guy to the door it's like it's up to us that kind of thing um so that Oh, has awakened something that's really profound and really amazing, and that is that that connection, that deeper understanding, that deeper communing with um, the world around us. You know. Yeah. Well, you stop suppressing the fear, mm-hmm. and you, you you deal with it, and then you realize, well, I can deal with it. So, people in in modern societies, to me, they say they're not afraid, but they're in a constant state of fear, yeah. and they've created a false belief in a protection that does not exist. Exactly. So, so, when you back out of it, you have to say, okay, the fake protection's not there anymore, and then when you start thinking about why the protection's not there anymore, you go, well, it was never really there. I was always exposed. I've survived this long. And then you start saying, well, now that I see it, what can I do to deal with it? And then you've now dealt with the subconscious fear by bringing it into consciousness. And then you have this state of power. You're like, screw it. I don't care. And at that point, then, like, the, I, to me, when as I left that world, the stress that went out of me, I'm like, well, I just bought 20 years of my life. Right. You know, I've got 20 yeah. years longer that I won't clutch my chest and fall over and die of a heart attack yeah. uh, in my 50s or have cancers. And I believe many cancers are aggravated and, and, and caused by a combination of chemicals and stress at the same time. Yeah. Uh, I can't say I'll live forever. I don't you know what I'm going to check out, but I, I know that I'll live longer this way. Yeah, yeah. And, and definitely like a lack of oxygen, you know, in more... Uh, heavily populated areas, you are per per billion or whatever getting less oxygen than you would normally be in a heavily densely populated green zone. You know what I mean? Sure, uh, sure. So we're getting more oxygen, and I've noticed a difference. Like I actually quit smoking cigarettes because being up here just felt so right and so good. You know, um, we really did luck out on the property, but there was a couple spots that we were looking at, and we would be at the same place either way, with whichever way we had gone. Um, we got the place at like literally a steal and there it was, it's like uh you know, one third what would have gone for in 2008 or something like that. Oh, wow. 
And, and that's one of the things I keep trying to encourage people as we look around at the, the, this bleak economic outlook is if you can work hard and build up some level of reserve right now, then the hard times for other people, and I don't mean in a predatory way, just in a re realistic way, become an opportunity for you. Because the guy that needs to sell cheap, you're not really predating on him when you buy cheap. You're, 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 you're somebody has to buy. He's going to sell to somebody. Exactly. And he's looking for a buyer, and I think, I think the way I put it in 2008 was get ready, hold on, protect yourself. But if you're in the right place, the whole world is about to go on sale. Yeah, and, that's, and I think well, we're in the early days of the sale. We're not even in the holiday sale yet, right? This is the right, this is the right. pre-holiday sale. This is the President's Day sale. It's not Christmas sale yet. That's that's exactly it. You know, I was building a little. My wife was building a little. You know, and then when we came together, we had a lot. You know, and um, it was it, it was like the the mindset that I had had was like I was building a kitty so that I could make quick last minute decisions that might actually save my life. You know, and then. Um, something like, oh, I could get out of the country and have enough to start off somewhere new or whatever it came to, you know, whatever Mad Max scenarios that was running through my head at the time. Because literally, I mean, that's literally what the, the transformation has been. It's been from like freaking out, you know, to with all these unrealistic ideas of how dangerous it was. And I think it was because of my level of exposure, you know, my level of like being caught with my pants down, essentially being in the middle of suburbia, middle of, you know, being plugged in and, and having um, businesses that were tied into the structure, you know, and then getting loose of that and and all of a sudden like, OK, I'm not freaking out so much more. I get to take things from a better perspective because I have more grounded, you know, and I have my, some of my basic things taken care of into such a degree that like, OK, if A happens, I've got B, if, you know, you know, like if B happens, I can do C, you know, like all these different options. You know, and I, I'll say that I think in the the long term, men need women in their lives. Oh, my God, dude. You know, kids yeah. added to it is even better. But when you're a 19, 22-year-old kid and you think you're you're bulletproof and you think you shit bullets mm -hmm. um, and you'll do stupid things like jump out of airplanes uh, for an extra $100 a month and, and get shot at – um, yeah. you think that way. You think, yeah. well, if it goes to, if it goes to the, the, you know, the shit is the fan, I'm going to be the, the biggest badass I can and I'm going to take what I need. And, and then as soon as somebody in your life is more important to you than yourself, you yeah. have to be honest at that point. Then you have to go, well, that's, that your first step of honesty is, well, that's not going to work for her, and it's not going to work for my kids. And then right. as soon as you say that, you go, and dumbass, it's not going to work for me either. Right. So now I have to actually admit it, and I have to actually do something about it. That's and I think without women in our lives, men would just – we'd be kids when we were 50. Yeah. In a bad way. Right. I think the, yeah. having some kid in you is good. We should all play, but no, you know what I'm saying. No doubt. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree 100%. And the – the thing that it always comes down to, everything comes down to, is honor. Your honor as a man, your your willingness to make a word, make a pact, and stick with it, no matter what it takes. You know, no matter how, if you give your word, then that is your that is your power. You know what I mean? And those of people who you know just vomit their their words all over the place, they don't have any intrinsic integrity. You know, and having that integrity is something that allows you to have more power in life and be more effective and be able to not just help yourself, but the ones that you love. And then the, the, the greater community outside of that. I mean, that's just being a good creature, not even being a good man. That's being a good part of the ecosystem. You know, when you when you have integrity and are working in coherence with your community, your family, your body's needs, you know, and, and in the earth's cycles, then you are a complete creature. You know, you, you have a personality and you have an intelligence that allows you to function in community in, you know, as a, as whatever, but you are a full and complete being at that point. Yeah. I think it also makes you realize your, your true, the true meaning of the word leadership. Yes. You know, that leadership isn't being a badass. Leadership is, is a servant attitude. Yes. Um, most people, when they're young, they have the complete I wrong idea about leadership. Leadership's being in charge. Leadership is telling other people what to do. And that when you realize that when, you know, and then, and then that gets misconstrued, and then academia demalizes de, de the man and tells him, exactly. you know, you're not supposed to be the leader, you're supposed to be equal, whatever. And then, you know, as you, as you get past all that stupidity, you realize that you, there's nothing more serving than leading. Exactly. And it's not about, oh, I'm big and tough and invulnerable. The greatest leaders are the vulnerable ones who are willing to show, like, this is where I'm growing. This is where I suck. This is where I'm not good at. <laughs> 
but you are, and I see that, and I respect that, and so you teach me. You know what I mean? Um, and, it, and, and a lot of the times when a person is confident and knows what they're talking about and knows that they know, you know, it comes across as arrogance or people get that, that vibe or whatever, but it's not really that. It's, it's like, no, I'm grounded in what I know, and if you want to come to me with an, uh, uh, something that's opposite, you better have a good argument. And you better have it backed up because I'll be, I'm man enough and honorable enough and have enough integrity to be honest with myself to say I'm wrong. You know, like I, you have just proven my proven me wrong. You know, and when I can do that, that's when you know you're you're uh, that's when you know you're a leader and when you're a man, really, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree, and I also think it helps to to demonstrate vulnerability once in a while. If you if you are well informed and you do lead well, is to actually whether it's a family or a group or a team at work or whatever, to to actually put on display some point where you you do need help, where you are weak, because then the the confidence and the the the, the attitude of this works comes across to people as being we can trust this guy with this versus he's just arrogant because we know when he doesn't know something. He's the first person to admit it and to ask for help on that on that level. Yeah, and also when I've made a mistake, you know, that's a big thing too. It's like if I've ever made a mistake and, I, and it's made clear to me, it's like, damn, dude, you're right. I was a total dumbass. I'm sorry, you know. And then making it right, and uh, that's that's almost a miracle, you know, in today's age is when somebody can see their their misstep or whatever and then and and make it clear like yeah you know i was wrong and it, it that like you said it goes so much so far to to endearing oneself to somebody else even deeper and that's the kind of things that um it takes to build a community you know and getting to know a community that might be completely different than what you grew up in you know like i have learned a lot of things that that southern baptist for instance might totally think are the devil's you know handiwork you know and that kind of um, that kind of touchy area, you know, that needs to be able to be gotten past and be able to you need to build rapport with your community regardless. You know, and it's on the fundamental things that make us human together. It's like we all have to take care of our family. We all have to do this. We all have to eat. We all, you know what I mean? And so I know exactly what you mean. We, well, the way I put that is I don't have to agree with you to respect you as right. long as we agree on primary principles. So if you derive your principle of not harming others from your faith, that's fine. If I derive my principle of not harming others from a philosophy that this is what works, that's fine. As long as we both agree that that's not what we're supposed to do. Or if I derive my attitude of I should stand up for the less fortunate out of some sort of a code uh, that comes to me and you derive it from something biblical, that's fine too. As yeah. long as we identify with those common principles. Exactly. And that's the that's the kind of thing that going here and, and um, getting to to do the work with the community here and, and finding out what are, what the values are and, and what our values are and how they mesh and, and what do we, uh, we get together on, you know? Well, this has turned into a fascinating interview, Xavier. I'm glad I had you on. Uh, and, and you've got a couple websites that people can learn more about the stuff you're doing. You've got one uh, talking about you know rescue and relief and, and, and some pretty cool reviews. I know you've got a, a review of the new 1022 takedown. Yeah. I'm jealous you have one and I don't. And that is what? The Nighthawks.com. Yeah, the Nighthawks as in knights in shining armor. And the whole thing comes down to... Um, really being a an example and a pillar of virtue in a world that needs it and it needs it in a in a in a out there sort of way um really it's about search and rescue it's about disaster relief and it's about um creating a team that you know if things get bad here we have a really good team that knows how to work together that can get things accomplished you know what i'm saying and then um but in the meantime it's also something that could inspire kids and and really get people thinking about uh in a mainstream way, what it means to be prepared and what it means to be civilly minded and civic minded. And then on your homesteading front, you have another one called ColonyEarth.com. Yep, and that is about all the, the, the cool projects that we're doing around here, the, the permaculture, the hugel culture, um, you know, how to preserve berries, like everything. We, we, uh, we have a bunch of people who contribute on there, all the folks on the homestead. And um, even my daughter, I think she's working on a blog about the benefits of coffee. She really wants to drink coffee. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> give me an intelligent argument as to why coffee's okay, you know, and make it public and make it well documented, you know, then then we'll think about it. And I think that would be a good good tool for you to grow in. And, you know, um, so that's one. And uh, we also talk about solar dehydrators and all the kinds of things that we're working on here. 
And at Colony Earth, we also do retreats and stuff. Like we just had a, a huge group of RVers come through that wanted to get an idea of what it's like to live on a homestead. And so they all pulled up, you know, six different families. So it was like 40 kids, you know, <laughs> it was nuts. But uh, we actually got a lot, a lot done, um, which is really amazing. And like we're way ahead of schedule compared to last year. Awesome. Well, one thing I want to ask you about before I let you go is what has your experience been with the, the Wolfer thing? It's been mixed. Seriously, been mixed. been mixed. Yeah, we've had some really great ones, really yeah. good ones, like that just woke up and were like, I'm going to go weed the berry patch, you know, or whatever it was. Um, they just were totally self-directed, totally awesome. And then we've had some who really didn't know what they were getting into, you know, and were like, is there power at our campsite and this and that. And, um, you know, one of one set of woofers put their trash in um, our neighbor's pickup truck. Oh, and wow. they and they came over with a shotgun. So <laughs> yeah, that'll happen. You know. <laughs> so yeah, it's been mixed. <laughs> but all in is all, is there any way you can? Do you think that you like in the future, if you continue to use them, you could do a better job of pre-screening them before they come out, or what have you? Have you yeah, learned anything on that? Yeah, we have a pretty comprehensive uh, screening process now. Um, we do checks and we talk to them on the phone a couple times and you know basic questions like have you ever used a shovel before you know have you ever have you ever used a, a skill saw you know things like that yeah do you think this is just couch surfing <laughs> yeah exactly um but then we've had people who came who did think it was just couch surfing whose lives have been transformed because of it you know they 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 got off the couch so to speak and like so it's really hit or miss. And for us, it's really about finding a balance of being able to be of service in our home. And, and here's like, this is where you can be outside, you know, or like, this is your space, you know, because um, living in community is a great idea. Living as a tribe is a really cool idea and really works if there is the right kind of communication, the right kind of people involved and the right kind of unspoken or even written down ground rules beforehand you know um we found a really great piece of property next to a a huge conservation easement and it's abutting the pisca national forest and there's a bunch of families who want to do it and some of them are really really into it and don't like guns and some of them are like really libertarian or like you know i i will let you not like guns but i'm going to shoot you know and like all kinds of stuff so there's a lot of i don't know about our modern versions of of intentional communities and how effective they can be from statistics that I've seen that most of them end in failure. Um, they do. Unless that there is a strong grounded person who is like the chief, you know, or, and that can be a, a female as well. Like the, um, like we know, we know a community down South that, that is very much around, around that. And then, um, and they're very successful, but then there are others that are not so, and they have this like long, uh, what's it called? Consensus process, you know? And it's like, yeah. everybody sits around and geez, come on now. You know, to me, the way the only way I think it can possibly work is for one person to say, okay, I'm setting it up. Mm-hmm. And then that person sets it up and says, these are the very few rules that we have. And most of the rules are actually that you can't interfere with somebody else doing something because you don't like it. You right. can do what you want, but is, but what they can also do what they want. If you don't like it, don't show up here. Yes, you can shoot. Yes, you can have animals. Yes, you can park a broke-down car in your front yard and leave grass grow up around it. Yes, you can do whatever the hell you want as long as you don't actually harm somebody else. And then make sure that anybody that comes in after that point understands this is what you're signing on to. There will be no changes. The reason people came here is they don't want, you know, they don't want that. Um, or if you're going to go the other route and be like the hippie, yippie, you know, kumbaya thing with there's no guns and no force and no, you know, whatever, uh-huh. then it needs to be that from the beginning so that those type of people will, will go there yeah. um, and make it so blatant that the, the new person coming in is almost literally hit over the head with it with, yeah, this is what I want or this is not what I want. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, finding out those things are really key, too, if you're ever thinking about getting into community, because that's a lot of options for people now. I mean, there's very – not everybody set aside some, some funds and were able to are able to buy a homestead, you know, and able to find that perfect spot. Um, and the option is going in on, on a big acreage, you know, in community, because there are those options available, and people are sitting on them and paying taxes on them and are totally upside down on them, and they're there you know, all over the country and going with a group of people together and saying like, let's go get a spot. That might be a better option for people financially, you know, because they they can, it's like they'll get more for the less that they have, you know, but all that other stuff needs to be worked out. 
See, and my thought is with that, you're so much better off once that's done and everybody comes in with their piece that you cut it up and everybody agrees on who gets what and then this is your piece of land and you manage that. And maybe you even set aside some common areas or whatever, but everybody has their own right. piece. And that way it's not, well, you're not doing enough or you're, you know, I'm doing too much. No, you do whatever you want on your right. piece. Leave me alone. Exactly. It's like an intentional <laughs> neighborhood rather than an intentional community. And not like Correct. an HOA or anything like that. It's more of like, you know, we're building a neighborhood and you have the same kind of values, you have the same kind of values, we have the same kind of values. We might be different in how we express them, but they're the same core things. Like we, we actually have a bunch of families that we're really good friends with who all raise their kids in different ways and different styles and everything. But there's like there's like some really hardcore Catholics, some really hardcore atheists. And, you know, it's like a whole big mix. And everybody gets along and, and respects one another because we all have the same core values. Um, so that's also, I think, really important in the community aspect. If you're going to be getting a piece of land with people, you know. Gee, it almost sounds like libertarianism works. <laughs> I know, right? You know, you know it's because yeah. like, I noticed that up at the Liberty Forum, there were people that were devout believers and there were people that were devout atheists. And it was the only place I've ever seen where people like that could debate each other without getting mad. Yeah, and it, you know? it takes a, a, a certain sophistication, I think, in people's personalities and in intellect to be able to do that. There, there's like... So many people are so brainwashed in like the, the lie of dichotomy that you had talked about, where it's like you're either this or you're that, you're either this or you're this. You know, it's it's either this or that. And the number one way we are lacking in freedom is our ability to think outside of those boundaries, to be able to, you know, um, get get past that this and that, good and evil, this and you know, it's 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 really moving into a um, uh, a way of of being that is. I don't know how to say it more comprehensive. You can, you can, be, I think it's a natural state is what it really is. It's a behaving like a natural human being instead of doing what somebody else has manipulated you to do. Exactly. There, there is no Democrat and Republican. They're the same exact thing. You know, they, they do the same exact stuff and it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't serve us at all. You know, to, and to quote the, the, one of our great guests from the permaculture side of things, Mr. Paul Wheaton. No, that's just marketing. You know, <laughs> that's, that's really what it is. It's, it's not what they do. It's how they market what they're going to do to you. Uh, yeah. And then they, they bifurcate you with that marketing message, you know. And then every time I see one of them speaking now, I just hear Paul saying that. He was talking about CFLs, but, you know, it was just the way he said it. Oh, that's just marketing. Yeah. And, uh, that it, It's kind of forever changed the way that I, I can ever – I can't listen to them without laughing. I, I used to get angry. Now I just laugh. Well, the next step really is us getting involved. You know what I mean? Maybe, Correct. you know, it's like getting involved in your local community. And like the, the fact remains is that so far as that you are not taking part in your government, then you are not the government. And then you are, you know, you, you might as well just take it, whatever they're giving you. And don't don't complain. But if you're out there doing something to be a part of it, then do something and be a part of it and fix it. You know, be be that integrous, you know, congressman or whatever it takes to to really change it around. And I don't know that it's really going to work at this time. No, I have to, you know. But it's like if we get enough people that are civic-minded that really care about one another as well as themselves and where as, as all of this, then getting them involved, it's, it's like it's hard to get a good person to be a politician. You know what, it comes, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, well, and good people that become politicians are quickly changed by the system, especially at the federal level. That's why I think if there's any hope at all there, it's at the local, the county, the state level, and right. it's turning the apparatus of government around 180 degrees to turn the county from coming down on the people to the county looking to the state saying, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute. No, you don't, you don't get to do that. Right. Uh, to put the put the put the the government closest to the people on the side of the people up instead of you know exactly. we're in a shit rolls downhill government model and we're supposed to be in a push it push it back uphill model exactly. you know and uh, you know we'll see where it goes there but I think that the things you're talking about like becoming a leader taking care of your family taking care of your community we can look at the system and go eventually it'll fail we just need to be here and be ready to put it back together. And that goes back to what you're talking about, the opportunities and, and what it means to, to go from that transition of fear-based preparedness to proactive, like, creation, you know, beyond organic, rejuvenation. Absolutely. Well, hey, Xavier, this has been a great interview, man. I, I appreciate taking the time to come on the show today. Thanks, Jack. And if anybody has any questions or whatever in the comments section, I'll uh, go check them out and answer them. Um, and I wanted to say thank you so much for what you do, man. This has been a really awesome experience. Well, 
I'll also let everybody know again the two websites to check out are the nighthawks.com and colonyearth.com. I will make sure both of them are featured in the show notes so you can link over easily if you're driving on the road with your iPod plugged in or something like that and don't have time to write it down. Don't worry, it will just be, always be in the show notes. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with Xavier Hawk helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Show you.